This is Isabel Siderny, your host for Frame by Frame, a podcast series that introduces you to the most influential and respected cinema post-production professionals working in New York today. In today's episode, editor Craig McKay and re-recording mixer Tom Fleischman talk about early influences getting started in the New York film industry of the 1960s and 70s, as well as their work on the film by Warren Beatty, Reds. Beatty ended up shooting a tremendous amount of footage. He was shooting 30,000 feet a day with two cameras. The film got so big that we had 64 people working with us just in editing alone. Probably one of the largest post-production crews in history. Frame by Frame is brought to you by the Post New York Alliance, because it's how you finish that counts. Our website is postnewyork.org, and we can be found on Twitter at at PostNY. Our host for today's session is Soundtrack, serving the needs of New York's post-production film and television communities for over 25 years. Craig and Tom started things off by sharing stories about early mentors, playwright and screenwriter Patty Chayefsky, editor Dee Dee Allen, and re-recording mixer Dick Forasek. Actually, I started out uh, doing television commercials, and I was a can carrier, sort of a messenger, so I'm a real foot soldier. Eventually, through some friends, I got to work in feature films, and I was very lucky to have a number of mentors instead of one who were and are great editors. My first was Alan Heim, who's the head of ACE, then Evan Lotman, Barry Malkin, and eventually Dee Dee Allen. I was working with them at a time when New York was coalescing as a film center. Probably one of the most exciting times and probably a golden age for New York. There were about 30 directors who just didn't want to work in Hollywood. And so they were all here, Woody Allen, Scorsese. I mean, there was a whole bunch of them. And I was lucky enough to get involved with that. And I actually used to uh, go to dinner with uh, Patty and Bob Fosse and Herb Gardner and a famous agent named Sam Cohen. And I can remember one dinner I asked Patty, you know, Patty, someday I want to do a little writing. Can you give me some words? And he said, Craig, there's only three things you got to remember. Who's your main character? What does he want? And who's preventing from getting it? Go to it. That was, he was, he was, everything was abbreviated with Patty. And then, of course, Dee Dee was a profound influence on me. I was actually pretty far along in the career when I started working with her. I can remember, you know, some of the things she used to say to me. Her big idea to spread out to everybody she could was cut with your gut. And she would always say that, cut with your gut, cut with your gut. Don't think about it, cut with your gut. And it's true. I mean, what she's talking about is editing is an intuitive process more so than an intellectual process. And cutting with your gut referred to that. And she also said other things like performance is king. So if you've got a wanky shot, but a great performance, you go with a performance, you know, no matter what. And she always said, never let the audience get ahead of the story, you know. Mm. And she, she passed these sort of thoughts and uh, rules down to a number of people, not only me. I mean, there were a number of people who she mentored, Richie Marks, Jerry Greenberg, uh, Steve Rotter, Ronnie Roos. And we were all part of that at that same time. Evan... Lotman uh, gave me my first chance to cut as an associate editor on a movie called Scarecrow. He let me cut two big scenes. Barry also let me cut on a movie called Who is Harry Kellerman. I cut a couple of scenes and worked with Herb Gardner, actually. And so all of them, in, in their own way, 
were unique and gave me an opportunity to move forward and to learn. Great. I'm going to jump to you, Tom. I wondered if you could begin by telling us a little bit about some of the people that you worked with kind of coming up in New York in the 60s, 70s. Well, obviously, I grew up in, a, in the family of filmmakers, my father, my mother, and they obviously had a great influence on me in terms of that. I knew from the time I was in middle school that I wanted to be in some aspect of filmmaking. That's re-recording mixer Tom Fleischman, whose father, Stephen Fleischman, was a documentary film writer, producer, and director, and whose mother, Dee Dee Allen, was a film editor and edited such films as The Hustler, Bonnie and Clyde, and Dog Day Afternoon. I really wanted to be an editor, but the year that I had dropped out of school, I got married very young. I was already married, 19 years old. And I started off at a very small little sound studio called Image Sound Studios, uh, run by a man named Alicia Birnbaum. And I had dropped out of NYU film school. I had, after my freshman year, the only job I could find was in this little tiny sound effects place. The guy, Alicia, had come from Israel. He had brought with him several cartons of quarter-inch tape sound effects that he had got in an auction somewhere. And he was paying me off the books. I wasn't in the union. He was paying me um, 90 bucks a week. So eventually we had a sound effects library, and I knew everything in it. So the sound editors would come in looking for sound effects, and we sold the sound effects for $7.50 an effect and $0.10 cents a foot for the stock. Uh, uh, and I, they would come and audition sound effects and they would say, I need birds. And I would pull out the birds and you know, play a different varieties of birds. They oh, give me 500 feet of that one and, you know, whatever it was. And I worked for them for two years. And then I was hired by a very old friend of my mother who had worked with her for a long time, a mixer by the name of Dick Vorsek. And he had opened a new facility called TransAudio. And they needed somebody to work there. Uh, I was offered uh, entry into the union, Local 52. At that time, Local 52 was covering all sound. It was a great opportunity. So I went and worked there for 12 years before I started mixing. So, and just for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with Dick Borisek's work, I'll mention some of his credits. Beyond Reds, for which you were both nominated for an Oscar, he also was the re-recording mixer for Louisiana Story, directed by Robert Flaherty, The Fugitive Kind, Serpico, Dog Day Afternoon, and many other films by Sidney Lumet, On the Waterfront, and many films by Elia Kazan, Salesman with the Maisels Brothers, Midnight Cowboy with John Schlesinger, The Long Goodbye and Come Back to the Five and Dime, Jimmy Dean, Jimmy Dean with Robert Altman, Lenny and All That Jazz with Bob Fosse, King of Comedy with Marty Scorsese as well as going back to The Honeymooners. Didn't he mix The Hustler also? He did, yeah. yes, yes, he did, yes, hustler. absolutely. Yeah. I, I, Twelve Angry Men. Twelve Angry yeah, Men. This is Cinerama, was the first yeah. Cinerama presentation he did that. So this was like Sensei Master. Yeah. What were some nuggets that he was like, this is important? Well, the story was always important. And I also got that from my mother, that the most important thing was story. And, and he was very, very attuned to story. He had a sense of what worked and what didn't work. If something wasn't working, he would point it out. He wasn't shy about speaking his mind about things that didn't work. He didn't say much in the mix. He was kind of a gruff, quiet, very serious, wore a suit and tie. Always. 
I would go up, because you could do that in, in those days, I would go and sit occasionally with him, and he would never comment on a film or a shot or a sequence or a cut. That's production sound mixer Chris Newman. He was very proper in that regard, you know? Yeah. I liked when he, a sound effect wasn't working. He would play it really loud yeah, right. for about seven or eight times and then lower it and, you'd, and go on with the mix, but you never heard that sound effect again. <laughs> he would always question you if it really got in the way of the narrative moving. Yeah. And uh, he would, sometimes on my tracks, they were always too bright. They were always too thin because I wanted the dailies to sound good. Yeah. And I would say to him, is this stuff okay? He said, yeah, it's, it's a, bit, a bit too bright, a bit too thin. He said, but I can fix that. I don't know what it's like now, but in those days, for the production mixers, well, for crazy production mixers like me, they want the product to sound finished. And one of the ways to make it sound finished is to put in some equalization to make it sound more finished. And I would do that. It, it was probably a mistake. But even the tracks we got from you in the early days... Yeah. All of those tracks were added to. Sure. All the time. Modified, changed. Every single track right. was changed. Right. So there is there's no purity. No, we're not talking we're not talking about purity. We're just talking about What are we talking about? We're talking about the the nature of the process. In other words, what's what's expected of the person on the set? Yeah. yeah. And how does the person on the set best serve the movie? And it's hard to solve that because some each Part of the movie has different requirements. Picture editor may require a, a combined track or a mixed track, for example, but the demands of the movie might be 14 separate tracks, you know? And how do you do both? It's very hard to do both and evaluate properly. I mean, in the old days, you would have a mono nagra, and you might have more than one microphone, which you were then mixing into a mono track. Right, and it stayed, it stayed mono. Okay, and it was always mono. It never changed. It was, you know, I would, I would pick it up from the lab, and I would transfer it to a piece of mag stripe, and it would be mono, and then eventually the movie would go to the theater, and the movie would be mono. It wasn't until things began to go into the more of a digital realm uh, and multi-track recording, where you were able to bring a portable multi-track recorder onto the set and have more than one track, all those, you know, you could have eight microphones and they'd be feeding eight separate tracks. Robert Altman. Robert Altman really that. kind of started that whole thing. He started that. And, and so, you know, each character would have a, a radio mic or a lavalier and there might be a boom. And all of these tracks were recorded separately on the set. So what do you do? How do you turn that over to the film editor then? Do you give him eight separate tracks to cut for every shot? No. Obviously that's going to be untenable, unsustainable. So what they would do would be to make a mix down of those tracks. And I think this is what Chris was talking about. And then the editor would cut with that mix down. And then eventually the sound department, Phil and, you know, the dialogue editor would go back and get the original recording with all the separate mics and maybe decide for this particular shot, there's only one character on screen. I don't need all those other mics. We'll just use this mic. 
And you mentioned, I hadn't heard that before, that Robert Altman pioneered the multi-track recording. I'm on... not sure he was the yeah. first, but he um, certainly well, did there were in people, Nashville. McCabe and Mrs. Miller in Nashville. McCabe and Mrs. Miller was a single track program. Yeah, no, I think it was, was, yeah, it? It was the picture Nashville at, it was, and was the first time right. that people, and, you, you would hear actual. And California Split and stuff like that. But in fact, there, were multi, there was multi-track in the 20s. Les Paul gave us multi-track. Who did? Les Les Paul. Eight, <laughs> gave us eight tracks. That's that's, that's right. multi-track. But there was two track. There was two track in the twenties. Okay. <laughs> well, they call that time, I worked on an Altman film, and by that time it was Pret-a-Porter. By that time he had thirty tracks that's going. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So. That sound editor Phil Stockton. Now, what do they do about what do they do about cutting? Do they cut with a mix down? I cut. Well, the the editor cut with a mix down, but would investigate if there was something right. questionable or too much, you know, do we have this person? Do we have to do this line? So they just sort of check. And then by the time I got to it, I'm literally cutting 30 tracks, like taking one in. And it was all on mag. So it's like, you know, for every reel, there's there's probably 60 dialogue reels, um, you know, cutting in and out and back and forth and everything. It was pretty crazy. It was, it was a lot of work. It was like doing, you know, five films at once. <laughs> well, this is interesting since you're all talking. I wonder if we could talk a little bit about the discipline of working in mag and film, 35 millimeter, and what that taught you, what you kind of bring forward into your work today that has served you. The medium was different, that's all. It's now digital, but the same ideas for uh, how you attack a problem, how you solve a problem, basically the same. I mean, you know, digitally now I can fade. In the old days, I had to <laughs> wipe down the uh, ferrous oxide and scrape it with a razor blade to create a, create a fade. And it was twice the work. Everything took twice as long. And there was the physical aspect. I can remember every time I had to get ready to cut a big scene, I had to get ready physically also. I mean, just get, <laughs> get my mindset that I'd be doing a lot of physical work. And I did. The minute, you know, Avid came around, that all disappeared. I'm down to three little keys on a board that says JKL, and I do most of my work that way. Everybody had to join gyms once, uh, yeah, once we went digital. Right. Yeah, because we used, used to, you, you have to you had good strong racks. arms because of doing rewinding. At, at the mixing but, studio, you know, they'd come down from the cutting room to start a, a reel of, of oh, God, yeah. and you would have, at that time, you know, it, it wasn't as many tracks as we have now with digital, but they could have 25 or, you know, 30 tracks. And they would, you know, they were usually in 2,000-foot lengths, 2,000-foot reels. So you'd have a rack of big 2,000-foot reels that you'd have to load up onto the dubbers. It took a long time. Uh, eventually, we got Dolby noise reduction, which was designed to reduce the hiss of all those tracks being mixed together. But each one of those Dolby noise reduction units had to be calibrated before you started. So a reel change could take almost an hour sometimes. We used to have a, a, a dartboard. <laughs> Phil and I would play darts during the real change because, you know, the guys in the back room would be in there checking the Dolby units and loading up all the tracks. The other thing is, I think one of the major, major technological changes that most affected my work as a mixer was going from mono to stereo. When I first started mixing in the early 70s, well, actually it was the late 70s, but when I started mixing here in New York, with Craig. Craig, you know, was the editor on my very first feature film, uh, Melvin and Howard. And, um, we'll, you know, talk about mentors. This guy here taught me so much. But we mixed in mono. 
So our master would be a single strand of 35 full coat with three channels recorded on it, one for dialogue, one for music, and one for sound effects. That made it very easy to create an M&E track. You just turned off one channel. When stereo came in in a big way and we started having to mix films in stereo, you could no longer record it on one single master because you had now a left, center, right, and a surround channel. So you had four tracks that you had to keep for music, four tracks for dialogue, and four tracks for sound effects. So we began to record on separate, we'd have three separate rolls of mag running on three separate recorders. And that was our master, our stems. Before that, when things were still all in mono, the number of tracks was much less. It was much fewer tracks. And things were very much simpler in terms of the logistics of mixing. There was no console automation. When I first started learning to mix from Dick Voracek, we would have cue sheets, which were basically charts of where the individual sounds were coming in and ending on each given track. So you'd have a sheet in front of you that would show you all the different tracks and where the sounds were placed on those tracks. And he would spend... I mean, I watched it when I was a child. I used to go to, my mother used to take me to the mix. I would go to the mix as a young child and hang out for a day. And I would watch him. And in those days, you couldn't back up and, and pick up. You'd have to record the whole reel from beginning to end. And he would spend most of the day making, doing rehearsal, listening to every piece of track, and writing down on the cue sheet every EQ setting and every fader position and whatever processing he was using, which in those days was very minimal. But after lunch, they would come back and start making a take of the reel. And he would start at zero and run through the whole reel. And he would just be reading his cue sheets. And he, you know, his mind was 10 feet ahead every, every time. So he was setting up for the next piece and every track, setting the fader. And it was almost like a performance. And... You know, the, the editors would sit, the director would sit in the, in, the, in the room, and, you know, you'd get down to, in those days, they didn't use 2,000-foot loads. They used 1,000-foot reels. But you'd get down to, like, seven 800 feet. You know, you're almost toward the end of the reel, and he hasn't blown anything yet. And it, it was almost like watching a horse race, you know. You'd be rooting for him to get through it, but, you know, without that. And he was amazing. In those days, uh, in Hollywood, they were using three mixers. One dialogue, one sound effects, and one music, and each mixer would just handle his own segment. And Dick was working by himself. There weren't that many mixers here in New York. Things were different. The process was a little different here than it was in Hollywood. He was never really able to adjust to stereo. He never quite got his head around it about making different stem masters, panning and that kind of thing, because he, you know, that wasn't, he, by the time stereo came in, he was already. He just, you know, he wasn't able to make that transition as well. And I was just starting out. So for me, you know, I would sit next to him and it was really exciting. I, you know, we worked on the first stereo film I did. He was doing Dress to Kill, Brian De Palma. Uh, and he would work during the day and I was working on this movie with Paul Simon at night. One Trick Pony. One Trick Pony. One trick pony. Yeah. And, you know, I would start at 7, 7 p.m., when he's finished, and I would go behind the screen and move the speakers apart, right, and, and then mix all night long and quit at four in the morning 
And then I'd put the thing back for him, so he would he was mixing Dress to Kill in mono. And we, you know, it was it was uh, it was it was wonderful for me to learn that way. I can't imagine how it's done now. I mean, the the, the process of of apprenticeship and and teaching and learning how to do our crafts. I'm sure it's the same way in the editing room. Has really changed. The editor, assistant editor, used to stand with the editor, and in the mixing world, certainly in Hollywood, it worked. You know that the low guy in the totem par would start moving, mixing foley, and then he would move over to the next chair and do effects, and then he'd be a music mixer, and eventually dialogue was always the lead guy. And you know the way I learned was to do it all myself. So, and I mean I can remember. Uh, just a little anecdote about Dick Vorsek. When, when high speed, you know, when I first started mixing, we didn't have any high speed dubbers. Everything was done in real time, forward and reverse. You couldn't jump to a scene, you know, you couldn't use like any of those things. It was like roll it forward and roll it back. And we would do some equalization while it was rolling back. But really, there wasn't much you could do while the thing was, if you had to go back 300 feet, you were sitting there for four minutes waiting. Hmm. Um, and and when high-speed dubbers came into being, uh, all the studios began switching over to them. And I remember Dick was very resistant to that. Um, and I don't know how much of that had to do with the fact that he was part owner of the business and it was an expensive proposition. <laughs> but, but his argument was, we don't have time to think about what we're doing. Yeah. You know? and, and it's true, though. He had a certain amount of a point because we did have time to talk about what was going on in the scene, whether the music was working, what sound effects might be needed that were missing or something that was there that needed to be changed. Um, and people had time to go out, you know, and do that. You, you know, if you wanted to make a change, you would stop, everything, the mix would stop, the track would come off, the dubber would go onto a, onto a editing desk with a synchronizer and whatever had to be done to it was done. And it all took a lot longer. Right now I'm in a Pro Tools and, you know, Phil's there, and I'm there, and we're doing a dialogue pre-dub, and, you know, uh, it takes only, only seconds to cut out a, an extraneous knock or something like that, and then track it only takes, you know, 10 seconds, whereas it would take five minutes, hmm. you know, or 10 minutes right. to, to mark the track, take it down, put it on the bench, find a thing, cut it out. Well, that's probably why we don't smoke cigarettes anymore. Because <laughs> we, don't, we don't have time. It used to be that Tom, like, did you hear that? And Tom would go, yeah. And we, I, I need you to come back and look at this. And we'd both be in the back room <laughs> puffing away. So uh, this you might know, have saved our lives in a certain in way. In those days, there was a lot of uh, rivalry between coasts. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, there still is. Yeah. Well, well not, not so much anymore. Not, not, as, not much, as much, not as no, much but as it was big time. One big union, man. It was, you know, it <laughs> was really... <laughs> it know. was not good between the East Coast and West Coast, certainly in the Editor's Guild. The, yeah, it was, was very no true. Editor's Guild. Well, it was was local. this in the 70s when New York economy was having it, a really tough time? Yeah, and well, all the way up through the mid-90s when, yeah, when no, the locals were merged. With the, with the sound, with, and with the sound locals, there was no reciprocity. You could, if you were in 52... You couldn't work in California. Ah. If you were working here, uh, if a West Coast editor came to work here, you'd have to put a New York guy on and vice versa. Oh. And even though if he sat there in a chair and did nothing, it just inflated the budget right. incredibly, you know. Oh, well, that's not... That's I, not uh, this first film that Tom and I did together called Melvin and Howard, which Jonathan Demme directed, uh, we were told that uh, we wanted to stay in New York. 
and the studio was at that point they always wanted you to go out to California because they felt they could control it but uh, and so that uh, we couldn't find we couldn't find anybody to mix it because everybody was busy and and Jonathan says I don't want to go to LA I don't want to go I said I don't either you know and so and then I I I had heard that Tommy was doing some stuff, and I said to uh, Jonathan, I said, you know, there's a young guy around here, and, and there is a room with six dubbers available, <laughs> or whatever it was. And, and, and I said, we should do that. And he said, yeah, let's do that. And so Tommy got his first, got his first mix. But what I'm leading up to about having fun is that Jonathan and I would sneak in. You know where this is going. Jonathan and I would sneak in <laughs> in the morning before Tommy got in and we'd hide behind the screen, right? Oh, you're funny. <laughs> and then Tom would come in and he, he's doing this and he's very, you know, it's his first mix, you know, and he's really, you know, we've tried to get him to relax. It's more like this. Yeah. <laughs> and, we're, and we're trying to get him relaxed. So Jonathan and I, hiding behind the screen while he's up there fooling around, we start making flatulent sounds <laughs> really loud just to get him you know, to have a little fun, yeah. Know? But it was, but, uh, and that's an absolutely true story. But uh, and what about the horse maze? The what? Horse, horse whinny. Horse whinny. Uh, that, that was just something we would place. Yeah. But I'm just saying. I would hire. I would hire a horse whinny yeah. in the movie somewhere. Every movie. Every movie. Every movie. Well, it yeah. started with Every Melvin movie. and Howard. Right. And then Jonathan, I'd I'd say Jonathan, you got to find it, you know. And he some he half the time he'd find it, half the time he didn't. <laughs> I'd also do the same thing. I'd do a line of dialogue. I'd hide it in there and see if you could... He still hasn't seen... still hasn't figured out something wild where my line of dialogue is. <laughs> but, uh, so, I mean, there was... There was ways of there was time for yeah. that also. There was time for that when you were working yeah. in MAG. Yeah. So that's... Yeah, the, yeah. Wow, what a wonderful <clears throat> answer to what was brought forward or not brought forward from the time of working with MAG film and... I have a, something to add to this too. Yeah. I think one of the one of the biggest changes too is that when we started it, learning to edit, uh, you know, in my case, production, sound, dialogue, that you know we learned that first because there wasn't there wasn't that much. Um, you, you know, is we learned the the editing process before. Now, what I, I I'll cut to the present time now it's the, somebody learns the um equipment and the plugins and all of that and uh, you know someone might be considered to be a very valuable assistant but they it's harder for them to make the transition into editor because they don't they haven't really you know honed their their listening skills it's more like well i know how to do this and i know how to do that but to what end you know is it does it sound any better yeah. Our, what what does good sound sound like? Yeah. When I was first hired by Alicia Birnbaum when I was 19 years old, and he gave me these sound effects to make, and I made a sound effects library, and I, I remember one of the things that he said to me was, um, you need to be able to learn to tune your ear into what you need to hear. In other words, if 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 you're concentrating on a line of dialogue, you really be able to have to tune out whatever else is going on around you and listen to the, you know, concentrate and focus your attention on the task at hand, uh, being whatever it is. Um, 
And I don't know if it's, you know, I don't know if that kind of training still exists. It's, uh, and it, it, it obviously served me very well. I mean, when I started fiddling around with equalizers and I went into the studio downstairs and started transferring these dailies and seeing what the different tools did, um, I was able to, you know, just because Alicia had sort of drilled that into me before I started any, doing any of that, I was able to remember that and just learn to concentrate on one specific thing and really focus. I mean, I, you know, um, we have a console. I've got a bank of meters in front of me, and I hardly ever look at them. I only look at them to find out maybe which track the sound is yeah. on, you know. Uh, but I, you know, in order in terms of just in terms of balancing sounds, mm -hmm. I don't do it looking at a, a meter or or anything like that. I have to listen, and 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 it has to work with the picture. I mean, we're all talking here about sound, but we really have to remember that it all goes with picture. Yes. It all has to play, and it has to play as a story, and it has to involve the audience, and it has to make them forget that they're sitting in their living room or that they're sitting in a movie theater. And it has to put them into that story. So anything that becomes distracting is an element that you want to, you know, you want to address it. You want to do something about it. Um, and the gear, you know, the plugins and the consoles and the, and the editing machines are all just tools that are used to accomplish the, really what, you, what you're doing is you're trying to make the, the film play. My mother used to say, if it plays, it plays. Don't fuck with it. And again, Robert, we're talking story. Robert Rawson used to tell her, don't pish in the mustard. Right. <laughs> yeah. If it's working, it's working. Yeah. Uh, I, remember, I remember Craig saying in an interview, yes, um, that he didn't really become a, a terrific editor until he learned how to write. Yeah, that's quite true. I, yeah, I... At least on my end. Or a competent editor, right. I think you might have said. Actually. There's a significant contribution to story. And, and uh, having a good sense of story, a strong sense of story, is one of the really important components, aside from being able to judge a performance and, you know, uh, understanding how the narrative moves forward and how to build a narrative. Uh, but yeah, I started to do some writing and I realized there was this book I read called The uh, Art of Dramatic Writing by Lajo Segri. It, yeah, yeah, I told uh, all of my apprentices, everybody about it. Because when I, when I was an assistant and I was becoming editor, I didn't have an overview of story. I couldn't get a grasp. Herb Gardner had given me that book actually and said, this will help you. And it did, it gave me an overview of story and how it needs to work. How, what you have to do in the first act, second act, third act, uh, how you break down your characters, your character sketches, uh, very involved. It took me a year to read the book. <laughs> so story is, story is everything. And of course, Dee Dee, she drove that home like crazy. So once I started doing a little writing, it actually helped me become an editor, but also a better editor because I had to articulate my thought more than just with some images. I had to be outside of it, you know? What I'm recognizing that you're all talking about, and I think, Ron, you kind of launched the point, was um, that we're talking about developing an editorial aesthetic, that you make, you understand why you're making the choice, not just that you're cutting somewhere to do something to change the, sh the perspective of the sound or the 
for the image, when, you're, when, you're, when, you have uh, a deeper understanding of why sure. you're... When, when Merch came to one of my classes and all the students sat there in rapt attention, we started to discuss how do you design a scene? Do you try, you know, 20,000 effects and see what works and see what doesn't work? And he said, and I think the students were startled to hear this, he said, no, I sit and I think about what the scene's about. And after I finish thinking about it, then I'll know what sound, more or less, will tell the story. Knows literally what, that's literally what he said. Because the art of thought, if you want to use the word art, is very elusive now. Well, you also, you know, you're, you're speaking of time again. That supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer, Ron Bokar. Having the time, having the luxury to actually do something and then look back at it again at another time. I mean, Sam Osteen uh, worked with him a few times. He walked into his cutting room one day and he was just finishing a reel that he was cutting. And he left it deliberately, tails out. He left it so the, the end of it was hanging out, not the beginning of the reel. And he put it up on his rack. And I'd say, don't you ever rewind it? And he goes, come on, these are cuts. They all have to heal. <laughs> and, I mean, you know, I, I thought of that for like a split second and kind of, well, yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, that kind of says it all. Uh, you know, so he wouldn't. He would never rewind until they wanted to look at that reel again. That's great. As far as he was concerned, it was done until they looked at it another time. Right. I love that. Yeah, I did too. And right. remind us of Sam, Sam Osteen's, uh, some of his credits. Sam goes back to... Uh, I mean, the graduate? The graduate. The graduate, yeah. It's Mike Nichols. Um, he was Mike's editor for years. Yeah, for years. You know, back in those days, if you made a cut, particularly earlier than that, back in the early 60s when they were still using hot splicers, mm. you'd lose a frame. Yeah, you mm. were committed. And, you know, my mother used to tell this story about working on The Hustler with uh, Bob Wise. You know, she was working on a scene and she, you know, she was having trouble with it and having to, you know, make changes and stuff. And she wanted to show it to him. And she was terrified because what you had to do was add black a black frame to fill in the frame that was lost. And so they'd call them blackies. And you know, she had this scene that was full of blackies, and she had to show it to the director, and it was the first big feature she'd been on, and she was terrified. And she showed it to Wise, and his comment was, great to see you working it. Oh, you know, nice. And that really, really helped her feel confident about what she was doing. And that, you know, I think the story of my life, at least as a mixer, is correcting my own mistakes. You know, every time I stop running, it's because I see something that I've done that's wrong and I want to address it. Or I see something that's bothering me or dragging me out of the story or taking me, you know, breaking the suspension of disbelief. And so it's, it's all about, for me, you know, just correcting my own mistakes constantly all day. Well, I would like to go back 30 or 40, 50 years <laughs> and redo some of those movies that I worked on. That's the only way you make it play. Yeah, it's the only way. It is. Well, let's jump, let's jump into um, a film. Red's? Yeah. I'll let's... tell you a Red story. Okay. Well, I'll just, I'll give us a little, a little context. Lead in? A little lead in? A little okay. lead in. All right. Um, so Red's came out of the opportunity that Warren Beatty came to uh, with the success of Heaven Can Wait. So he was he made Heaven Can Wait in 1978. And Shampoo. Shampoo, which were big, big successes. They, like, minted money for Paramount. And they said, okay, what do you want to do next? And he said, well, I want to tell this story about this 
political journalist John Reed. Communist. Communist journalist. Right. So it was this big budget docudrama sympathetic to the Russian Revolution resulted in an epic about American communists. And it came at the end of a line of these kind of grand movies like The Godfather, Lawrence of Arabia, Gone with the Wind, in the sense that kind of had this endless budget, the timelines doubled, and so there was this kind of similarity there. But really, it, 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 from what I understand, it pioneered a blend of fact and fiction. It came at a time where communism was exceptionally taboo. That year in 1979, when he started shooting Reds, the Russians were invading Afghanistan. In 1980, America elected Ronald Reagan, who had dubbed Russia the evil empire. Screenwriter Robert Town and film critic Pauline Kael begged Beatty not to make it. But he was really stubborn and I guess had this kind of iron will, and it went on to receive 12 Oscar nominations and won three for Best Director uh, for Warren Beatty, Best Cinematography for Vittorio Soraro, and Best Supporting Actress for Maureen Stapleton. I'm Just because we were just talking about editorial aesthetic and how you make choices and how you set that up for yourself, what was what were some of the conversations going into the edit? Beatty in financing, Beatty was the producer, the active producer on the film, and he didn't really go through the studio. He went directly to Charlie Bluthorn, who was the head of Gulf and Western at the time. He skipped <laughs> over everybody and got the money to do it, uh, which is a, a very smart move. And he wanted to incorporate these old commies in the movie as part of the narrative. And that was, we all thought it was a good idea. And actually, we started shooting them before the actual physical shooting of the movie because they were so old. And by the time we finished the movie, I think about almost 80% of them had died. Whoa. So Vittorio had this little black tent, and he would go around to... <laughs> different locations and shoot these people against black. You know, he'd be out in Missouri or he'd be here. And he, so we had this collection of old people. And that was Beatty's intent from the beginning. Didi had, had started the film and Beatty ended up shooting tremendous amount of footage. He was shooting 30,000 feet a day with two cameras. And the, he was shooting so much that the cameras got hot and cameras would lose focus because hot air got between the lens and the aperture plate. And so Vittorio had to send to Italy for technoscope cameras, which have a direct contact between the aperture plate and the lens. And so we shot that. But what Didi realized is that this, this, it's a tremendous amount of film. And she called me and said, I'm working on this film. It's an epic, big Russian revolution film with Warren Beatty and I need a partner. Are you interested? And, well, of course I was interested. <laughs> I mean, and so we met and we talked about, you know, we talked about the movie and how it might be tricky to incorporate the old folks in and keep the narrative moving because you've got a, narr a strong narrative force and it was strong and then you stop to do a documentary piece and it stops the narrative. So the re real trick to doing that movie is to keep the narrative going through those documentary interviews. And, and that was a process that went on all through the making of it. At that point, the film got so big uh, that we had probably one of the largest post-production crews in history. 
I think it was the largest the ever. Largest. Yeah. I think I was the only one not working. Well, I wasn't on it either. Oh, you weren't? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We, we had other facilities. We had 64 people working with us just in editing alone, just the editing department. Dee Dee Allen also talked about memorizing the footage in terms of Reds. Was <laughs> Well, Reds was such a – there was 3 million feet of film on Reds, and try and memorize that, you know. Uh, fortunately, we had a we had a system that was we bought from Stanley Kubrick, which was cr created by his editor Roy Lovejoy, and uh, it was a it was a beta deck and a and a film chain set up on a moviola, and every shot there was a footage, every line of dialogue there was a footage, so we could check every line by just punching a footage, uh, and it was a really you know early pre runner of you know digital. Ultimately, it took us almost two years to edit the film because there was so much. Thank God we had that system I was talking about that Ray Lovejoy had invented. It saved a tremendous amount of time. Warren was actually pretty, pretty free with us. He he wanted us to bring stuff to the movie. He was very good with that, and he, and, he, and so I was cutting this scene and I was putting it together, and. I put this one piece in, in which it was Warren's best piece of performance. And I said to my, but he had some crow's feet showing. And I, I, I remember when I started the job, Warren Beatty said to me, Craig, there's one thing I want you to know. I'm the biggest narcissist in Hollywood. <laughs> remember that. <laughs> I said, you got it. <laughs> so anyway, we're cutting the scene and there's this shot with crow's feet in, but he's really good in it. And I said to my assistant, Jill Savitt, I said, Jill, come take a look at that. And she, she goes, look, yeah, he's good in it. Yeah, I said, but he's, he, you know, the crow's feet, I don't know. And I said, well, <laughs> you know what? I'm going to put it in anyway. He's really good in it. So I finished the cut, and I called Warren in to come take a look. And so we, we run the scene, you know, and he's playing, and he's looking, and running, running, and we finish the scene. And he sits there, and he thinks, he said, you know, that's really good. I mean, it's really, really good. But you know that one shot with, you know, the well, the one shot? And I said, oh, yeah, I know. He says, I said, you're really good in it. He says, well, he says, don't you think it shows a little too much character? <laughs> <laughs> I had to take it out. <laughs> you know, we had some associate editors, Angela Correo, Billy Sharp. Kathy Wenning was doing exclusively the old folks. Mm. That was her department, and I mean, it became high, we became a mini studio, yeah. is what we became. Yeah, the mix was four months. I mean, it was a four-month mix, and uh, it's the most unusual mix that I've ever seen before or since. It was very early in my career. I'd only mixed, I think, three films before I started working on Reds, and it was very intense. Warren was. He was great, but he could not make up his mind about things, you know. He, when we got to the final mix, there was a very big climactic scene that happens just before the intermission. When John Reed, Warren Beatty's John Reed, goes to this factory, and the revolution is about to begin, and the factory workers are all up in arms, and Warren gets up on the, John Reed gets up on the stage and makes this speech, and they all begin singing the Internationale, and then it goes into this montage of the beginning of the revolution, and then there's the intermission. Well, they shot this scene in Finland, 
with a lot of Finnish extras. And none of them were speaking Russian. They were speaking, you know, they weren't saying anything. They were counting. They were reciting nursery rhymes. I don't know what they were doing. Uh, but they certainly weren't speaking any kind of intelligible thing. And I had done a temp mix literally a year earlier from the final. I had done a temp mix of this scene. Uh, Marie Schell, who was the sound editor, had provided some crowd loops, just loops of you know general crowd noise. And we put that behind this conversation that takes place. And then uh, he gets up on the stage and people start reacting to that. Uh, but it was very it was very raw. It was very rudimentary. There was no real definition. There was no layering. There was no real nuance to the track. It was just this roar and the dialogue, and that was about it. And Warren's idea for the mix was to keep the dialogue, the you know between Warren and between John Reed and the character, but replace all of the stuff that was going on in the background hire real Russian actors, write speeches for them, write lines of the people on the floor reacting to those speeches, and basically replace the whole background so that if a Russian were to watch the movie, they would understand what was going on in the scene. And Maurice and his crew accomplished this. We mixed it for a week, or it seemed like a week. We were mixing that one scene. And finally, Warren came in and looked at it, and he said, guys, this is just fantastic. This is exactly what I wanted. And we were also very happy. They went to a screening, and Elaine May <laughs> was there. And Elaine May had been involved in the film, writing, doing a lot of writing with Warren, and consulting on the editing. And Craig can tell you probably more about that than I can. But the next day, Warren comes back to the stage, and he says, well, we had a screening with Elaine, and, you know, she just felt like the scene didn't really have the same emotional impact that it had when we were doing the scratch, when she, when she watched the scratch mix. And so we all kind of sighed, and, okay, well, what can we do? We started to sort of deconstruct it a little bit, you know, we made it a little less specific, and sort of put that stuff off more in the distance, and brought out some more of the noise of the crowd, and uh, they screened it again. They had a whole series of screenings over the course of what it was about two weeks, I think. And every time Elaine would say, yeah, that, you know, he kept screening just for her. Oh. <laughs> oh, that's better, that's better, but it's still, it's not quite, it just doesn't have the same. Eventually we gave up. And what happened in the end, we were coming down to the deadline. We had to deliver. We literally transferred the scratch mix into the master. And that's what's in the movie now. Oh my if God. you go see that movie, you'll see. Yeah, uh, and sounds yeah. like some other jobs, <laughs> just on a grander scale. Craig, <laughs> were there scenes that you remember that were particularly challenging? That well, actually, the scene Tommy's talking about, I edited, and it was Warren decided that the movie was three hours and twenty minutes long. That's the cut that he liked, and Didi and I wanted it to be three hours, and we had it all worked out, and he wouldn't do it. That's when he decided we needed an intermission because people couldn't sit there for three hours and 20 minutes without having to pee. So that's the whole reason we I had couldn't. the intermission. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to cut that scene. I had to build it up and this triumphant international, you know, with everybody marching and so that 
they'd come back for the second half of the movie. And that's true. It was finished, and all of the people are singing, but they're not singing in Russian. So the hard part for me was to try and get the song in sync with these Finnish guys, you know. And it actually it actually works. I mean, emotionally it works, and, and it arcs, and, you know, it's, it's a very it actually became a very exciting part of the film. In terms of what was the most challenging to to get working in that film, the most challenging was indeed working the old people through the story. Ultimately, we found a way in which it worked and it played. And Warren came in one day and said, let's take them all out and just see how the movie works. Well, it didn't have the magic. It didn't have the chemistry. It didn't play the same without those old people. So his insight to bring them in to this narrative with moments from sort of documentary footage, quasi-documentary footage of these interviews. interviews, yeah. So that was the most difficult part of making the movie, aside from its scope, too. It was huge scope. I mean, epic, classic, you know. But the old footage that you brought in, a woman who was my mentor, because I come out of picture editing, was Zena Boynow, and she was my good friend and mentor. That supervising ADR editor and sound editor, Deborah Wallach. She spoke Russian. She was, she was, uh, she was Eisenstein's... Uh, Sister-in-law. 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 She knew John Reed, I think. And she was a film editor. And she, and she was, was an amazing She was a film editor, editor. yeah. Right. She, was, she, she was, was part of a whole team. bunch of, of film editors. She was not on every day. She would show up periodically yeah, and we'd yeah, go over stuff with her. What a provenance, though. Oh, my God. Sergei Eisenstein's sister-in-law. 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 Oh, my God. That's good juju to bring into the film. <laughs> so, now, you guys, do you feel like this was a revolution? Like, was there some kind of intent for this film to be a part of a revolutionary movement. I mean, Warren Beatty had backed Bobby Kennedy. He was campaigning for McGovern. Was there any kind of vibe? Or did he's like, did he say to you, listen, I want this to be a story that has resonance today? I didn't feel that way. I, I think it was, it was just a love story. Yeah, it was a love story. It was a love story. Above, yeah. above everything, it was a love story. But I mean, he was, uh, you know, he was, he was a pundit. He was very politically involved, you know. Some of our consultants were from Washington, actually. But uh, the upfront was the love story. That was everything. And you both were nominated for an Oscar. Do you feel like that came out of being recognized for sheer stamina? I have no idea how that <laughs> happened. It was the first time any... I didn't get it, so it, I'm, I don't know. So when they told me that we had been nominated for an Oscar, I was really... My, my jaw just dropped. I, 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 yeah. I remember the moment I was going up in the elevator and Maurice said, congratulations, you got an Oscar nomination. And I just went, what? What are you talking about? And, you know, I had only done two other films before that, maybe three. Melvin and Howard. Melvin and Howard, I had done a, uh, a film for Errol Morris called uh, Gates of Heaven, about the pet cemeteries. And I had done a film called The War at Home, which was a documentary about uh, the anti-Vietnam war protests in Madison, Wisconsin. And those that was my total experience, you know. No, I... I guess maybe I had done One Trick Pony and Honeysuckle Rose also. And then I started on Reds. So I, was, I really was in way over my head. I, I was still really green. I was still learning, you know. And uh, I was working with Dick, thank God. Dick was the lead guy. But Dick had had, had a heart attack, and he, was, he couldn't work long hours. And so he had to leave at the end of the day. And Warren was a night owl. He wouldn't show up until noon, 1 o'clock in the afternoon. And then he'd want to go until midnight. So uh, I was I wound up coming in. Dick would start in the morning, and I would I would come in around noon, 
and then I would just stay as late as they wanted to stay. It was a, it was a real endurance test. I mean, more so than any film I had worked on then and since. You know? I mean, it was over two years to edit. Yeah, yeah. We, I mean, we'd get a bunch of dailies in, and we'd screen for fourteen hours. Straight. With a daily straight. Yeah. And I, my feeling was that the Oscar nomination was a fluke. I mean, I didn't understand how it happened. Because at that time, Hollywood and New York were still bitter rivals. So, you know, for someone from New York to get an Oscar nomination was... Well, except for Jerry Greenberg. It, Jerry had gotten one for, uh, and I think, French Alan Heim for um, maybe all... No, all that jazz was later. Yeah. This was before, this was before yeah. all that jazz. Jerry had gotten for the French Connection. He was, he was the only one. Yeah. No one from New York was getting nominated for an Oscar. This was 1981. 1981. 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, 80, they were rewriting it. No, writing too, not rewriting. You mean so they were as you were editing, they were shoot, still shooting. They were having story conferences. Yes. I think the last thing we mixed was this very scene at the very beginning of the movie, where they're drinking the tea and teacups, and it's this montage, and he's, and we were. I remember sitting like the last night of the mix. Uh, Warren had uh, sound one was open for the ADR stage, and he was sleeping down there. And Elaine May was writing the script up in the editing room and sending it down. And we were all waiting around for hours and hours to get the track, you know, the, the final dialogue tracks. Uh, it was like the last night of the mix. And we just barely made the delivery. You know, the plane had to be on the plane to Rome because they were printing the film in Rome. And, the, you know, the track, the track negative, they had kept the lab open for the track negative all night long. It was nuts. I can remember right. Warren would call Dee Dee and I into the story conference and... Elaine May would be there, Mike Nichols would be there, Robert Tan would be there, uh, Stephen Sondheim would be there, and and they'd be hashing out what scenes would make it work, you know. And it was really hysterical because Elaine would be spouting something and Nichols would be behind her making faces going, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, it, was really, it was like, it was crazy, oh my crazy God, what a stuff. classic New York crew, though. Yeah. And then... Uh, even getting the score, we Sondheim had written a song, and we tried to use that song as as score, but it didn't work, and so we had to bring in Dave Grusin to uh, do the score. But he did it in like three weeks, which was an amazing, under pressure, you know. Yeah, Sondheim just wrote the main theme, basically. It was, yeah, I'll be home for Christmas. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, <laughs> sounded like that. <laughs> But he was also really considered a consultant. I mean, Warren Beatty brought him into that circle. Yes, for ideas, yes. Yeah, yeah they were all, you know, razor sharp. They really were. Those, con those conferences were really uh, amazing to, to witness, you know. So let's begin the discussion of Silence of the Lambs, which came out in 1991. Tells the story of a bright young FBI agent in training, Clary Starling, with the assignment to interview Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, arouse his interest and secure his help in drawing a psychological profile of a new killer. The film won five Oscars, including Best Picture, 
Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress for Jodie Foster, Best Screenplay for Ted Talley, and Best Director for Jonathan Demme. Maybe you can start off by talking about, kind of bring it full circle when we talked about what's really important is to develop trust and collaboration. How did, how did you guys develop that? How, do you, how did you develop that on this picture? Do you remember starting out and kind of having a conversation about what the film was about so you could all make the same film? Well, I came to the first meeting with Craig and Jonathan, and we, um, you know, they were just shooting and still cutting. We never even looked at the film, but we just had an overall conversation about the, the mood and the, the tone of the film and everything like that. And then, unfortunately, I ended up working on it in a lesser capacity because I was stuck on another project, and I ended up cutting a couple reels of dialogue. And so I was kind of out of the rest of the process. And uh, But, yeah, there was a lot of discussion about what the look of the movie was, was how it was headed, and, you know, some ideas about just creating moods. So. One thing that I remember, I just watched it again last night, and there's so much wonderful layering that's so subtle woven into ambience. How much of the work design did you think about, like, this is going to be a very persuasive experience at all times? This is a suspense film, and how much of that was ever present in... Well, the, the sound and the design work that you did. Skip and uh, Eugene Garrity were the two main designers uh, mm. doing a lot of those kind of layering uh, elements. My job on it was a sound effects editor. It was basically working at nights because we only had one room with the equipment that we were working on. And um, working on silence at night <laughs> when you've got rats scurrying around in the rooms. And yeah, it was kind of yeah, a little freaky. But um, I was the point guy to go to the meetings with Jonathan and Craig to get the spotting. And, you know, again, Eugene and, and, and Skip had their layer, and then I had, you know, mine to do, which was basically everything that you saw in the film plus whatever else I felt, you know, I could throw at it. And this was the kind of direction I got from Jonathan. I want this scene to be blue. <laughs> Yeah, this scene over here, yeah, maybe a little red. That was it. Okay. And how did you respond to that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I remember some talks remember about some uh, textures about... and colors as yeah. well. I mean, it was the strangest, you know, I took a look at Craig a couple of times. And, you know, <laughs> he didn't want to look me in the eye, and, you know, we just kind of worked our way through it. Um, and then you, do you guys talk about what blue means? Uh. I asked, it, he said, you'll <laughs> figure it out. The picture, the picture editor and the sound editor are like, what does blue mean to you? Well, this be but there's, well, there's no language. I mean, we are, there's no language. You have to just kind of take it and, and go with it. Do, um, did you know that, that Friedkin on The Exorcist showed me Hieronymus Bosch painting Garden of Earthly Delights and said that that's what Linda Blair's voice should sound like? This is like six, six months in the pre-production. Yeah. That's what he wants her voice. I mean, directors take their cues from certain things, and you have to sometimes be the interpreter of it. Interpreter. Um, on most movies, and silence wasn't like this, on, on most movies, you find that out from doing mixes for previews. Silence, I don't think. Did Silence no, have a preview? It never pre had That was pre-preview. We, had, preview, we actually had, no, three we had a preview. Did you? We actually had three. But from a sound editor's point of view, and a you know, designer's point of view, whatever, you get feedback from those to find no, out. None of the texture sounds you were talking yeah. about were 
there yet. I think yeah. that showed up at the mix. It was music, mostly it was music, I think. Music, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that, kind of, that collaboration you're talking about um, amongst, you know, the, the crew happens as we're developing. You know, the director and the editor are always working together because they're usually in the same room. We're off doing our own little thing in some dark corner. And it's nice to be able to get everyone to get together to listen to what you're working on. That was a process that would be developed when you started to do preview screenings. You know, you'd come in with the material and do a test. We did that with Philadelphia a lot. Mm. And by the time we got to the mix of Philadelphia, we kind of knew what we wanted. You know, with silence, it was all a big surprise. You know, Tommy, Tommy got everything I'd cut. Skip brought in stuff. Eugene had stuff. And I was never at the mix. So I have no idea how that worked out. I just saw it recently because they had a, an event of celebrating the 25th anniversary. But when I'm thinking of all the breathing and all that. Well, the breathing was really important. Things. Particularly at the it end. It was so important. In the end, that, that end scene when she's scene. down in the basement. Hyperventilating. Uh, you know, that, that ADR breathing was amazing. And that's not just something that happens. Like, you know, you do, an actor will do some version of it, but then it has to be created and moved. So you ADR'd that final scene with the night vision that's yeah, so suspenseful and he's got his hand almost yeah. about to reach out to her and the gun and then, yeah. And then, you know, Ted Levine, when he had to do some things with his singing and talking about things, he had to do some, and he, I remember him watching the scene and saying, you know, I was actually scared of him coming in because I thought, because his performance was so scary. I thought, oh, I'm a little nervous there. And, he played um, the Killer. Yeah, the Buffalo Bill. And, it was, uh, it was so a very he, sunny, uh, funny session because and he, he, he said, "I'll never work again." Is he, what said, he said <laughs> he came in and he he hadn't seen the scene and we ran it for him before. Which scene? The final scene? The, no, this this was the the, the dress when he gets you know he backs up into the yeah and butterfly the butterfly. Oh yeah, when we did the pit scene, though, we did some. Oh, stuff. the pit. Yeah, yeah, right. He came in. He hadn't seen a frame of the film and he looked at it, and he had, he had just had a son. <laughs> <laughs> and the scene was over, and he, he looked up at me and Deborah, and he goes, what am I ever going to say to my son? <laughs> what am I going to say? <laughs> he was devastated, you know. Yeah. Well, um, just because you're all here, and I don't know when you'll ever be assembled again, is, are there stories from Philadelphia that you that kind of shifted the way that you approach your work or moments where... You like I like the scene for me in Philadelphia that was just so memorable is the mama, the, the mama morta, the mama morta scene. Yeah. For us, that was the yeah, the big thing, and you know how we did it. And the, the quick version is that you tell it that uh, uh, yeah, keep us out of there was <laughs> there was a uh, an opera playing, and it's a famous scene. One Tom Hanks's Oscar, and it's a scene between Tom Hanks and Denzel Washington. And there's this opera music playing in the background. And at one point in the middle of the scene, Tom Hanks gets up and says, this is my favorite aria. He turns up the record player and it plays through the rest of the scene and he's describing what's to Denzel what's going on in the opera. Uh, and the way that it was shot was that Hanks originally had an earwig where he could hear a little thing that he put in his ear that he could hear the opera music while he was doing his dialogue. And there was distortion with it. It was a poor quality earwig. They didn't have them. They hadn't developed that technology well enough. And it was all distorted. And it was distracting him from his acting. And he asked not to use it. 
and they wound up having to play the record live on the set while he was talking. And um, so we had a track that had Hanks's dialogue and this opera playing underneath. And nobody wanted to loop the scene because it was such an emotional powerhouse of a scene. Uh, we had a good recording of the dialogue, but it had this music under it. And it was a matter of just, you know, I had, the, I had a track of the music, a track of the record, <clears throat> and I had the dialogue track that had Hanks's dialogue plus this background music in it. And it's very tricky to have to combine that kind of thing because you get phasing problems. And it was a matter of finding a way to lower the production track when he wasn't speaking and let the record play. And then when he would deliver a line, I would have to raise the production track and lower the music track so that the music from the production track would kind of take over and try and do that in a seamless way so that it wasn't very obvious. And it, it, was, a, it was a bit of a chore. Let's put it that way. It was, you know, it was very kind of a tedious thing, but it worked out. And in the end, it's, uh, it's, it's a great scene. Wasn't it the first take he did? That's the first take I, I used. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's what I was going to ask. They really but he, what he, Tom Hanks, was so completely blown away because yeah. he had no idea what he had done. Well, they didn't have any idea and so when he they were was shooting it. He no, had no, absolutely not. No they, idea. They didn't he was so know moved. if they wanted to shoot the scene or not. And, uh, yeah. uh, and Jonathan said, the one thing I knew, I had to shoot it from God's yeah. point of view. God's, run, run. That's the only thing I knew. And Tom said, well, what the hell, let's do it. And, and then so, uh, when, when they finished, when they said cut, the silence in the room was extraordinary. Yeah, I, I bet. You couldn't yeah. hear a breath yeah. Yeah. in the room. I then continued, you know, we finished the, the scene. The performance was and, so powerful. And uh, Tom finishes the scene and uh, Denzel leaves. And then I decided to pick up the music again. Yep. Yes, which and is carry it, quite wonderful. Carry it all the way through to the house till he gets in bed with his wife and yeah. puts the little girl to bed. The girl yeah. to bed, yeah. So it was one big, long, yeah. I mean, probably the longest music scene I ever did. The, uh, in, uh, the interesting story with uh, Philadelphia is that we were cutting it, and uh, Johnny and I started talking about music, and uh, Jonathan said, you know, Neil Young got in touch with me, and he said he'd like to write something for the movie. I said, well, yeah, yeah. Well, let's, Bring it on. let's do that. So <laughs> Neil wrote this song very quickly. I must say it wasn't, couldn't have been more than a week and a half. We had this, and we're playing it in the cutting room, and it's unbelievable, you know, and we finished playing it, and Jonathan says to me, he knows, he understands more about this subject than I do. He said it's really powerful. So I cut an opening with that song, it's a very slow and moving song, and it really d didn't serve us well for an opening. You know, you're trying to kick off a movie. So I, I just said, you know, it's not working. We have to, you know. And, and I said, let me try it for the ending. And we tried it for the ending. It was absolutely perfect. Mm -hmm. With the home movies and everything, it was just amazing, you know. And then we had to do something about the beginning. And Jonathan said, well, let me talk to Bruce Springsteen. Maybe he'll, we can get him to do the opening, right? So we called in Springsteen. He came, looked, he talked. He said, yeah, yeah, I want to do it. You know, so he said, uh, how long, you know, oh, I'll have in a couple of weeks, you know. And so we waited a couple of weeks, and there was no song. Another couple of weeks, no song, you know. You know, four weeks, no song, you know. We couldn't figure out, you know, 
which you know, let him be, you know, just let him do, you know. And, and it might have been another three weeks, even longer. I don't know. And we finally, we finally got the song, The Streets of Philadelphia, which was great for the opening. Worked perfectly, perfectly. We couldn't have been happier. But what we didn't know what was going on is that Bruce had been in a writer's block. And that was, he was having all of this trouble. And finally, it was this song that brought him out of his writer's block. Oh, yeah. nice. That's wonderful. Yeah. My quick story on Philadelphia yeah. was, because I, I was on it really early on, which was really great, because we were developing the sound at a at a real early point in the film. I mean, Craig was still cutting. It was, the studios haven't seen it yet. Nobody, producers hadn't seen it. And I saw a film, it was for the first time in my life, I saw a film that I was working on that went through two different shapes. It was almost two different movies. The first movie was a complete you know, Denzel was an ambulance chaser. You got into Tom's head in a way that you didn't in, 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 in the final so much. I mean, you were involved. You suffered through AIDS. You died in that first cut. It was incredibly powerful. Too powerful. Because <laughs> Jonathan saw it as something that, no, I want some kid in Texas to watch this movie with his date and not run out of the room screaming. I want him to try to relate. And the only way you could do that at that time was to put a little distance between you. And Craig and Jonathan went through this recut of the film that literally became what we have now. It's Philadelphia. But you can't really compare the two. They're emotionally, they're, they ended up being very different movies, yet they're all from the same material. <laughs> and was that just after a, a kind of the first pass and you recognized? Yeah, we, after we completed the first, the, the, the first cut was complete you know, not with Tom yet, but it had been done with a temp, and we had... The first cut was uh, pretty expository also. Yes. Which we felt uh, it didn't have enough emotionality in throughout to carry it, at least in terms of its playability. So we decided to go back in and create a totally emotional narrative line, built on emotions, not necessarily on story narrative. Yeah. And we went back and we redid the whole thing. I mean, he's... Ron's right. I turned that inside out. Two separate movies. And it took it took about a year to edit that movie, 12 months, getting both versions. And I felt that we were successful at it. And I thought that we had done something in terms of the way we approach a narrative that other films weren't doing at that time. And Philadelphia came, came out, and I thought we had done a great cut. And I thought we actually broke some ground, at least in terms of developing a narrative and it came out and the reviews were not great nobody saw what we were doing and I really got depressed because I knew we had done something and then about a month and a half later the film came out in Europe all of the critics in Europe recognized what mm. was being done mm. and, and which pulled me out of a nosedive yeah. you know but uh, I'm very proud of that film and even today I when people learn I worked on it, that I edited it, I, people are just blown away by that film. I mean, it's, it has a tremendous It's less an impact. Yeah. yeah. Quite amazing. And I have a good Craig. I thought we were here to roast Craig, actually. That's why, that's why I came. So I'm going to tell a little story. Craig, actually, um, this is what I love about Craig, is he, he would say, Phil, could you just put a little carbide over this cut? And I'd say... Yeah, sure. Why? 
He says, well, could you just, you know, put a car by over it? And I'd say, yeah, yeah, I can, but but why? I mean, it's, what's going on? He says, well, you know, there used to be another shot in here, and we took it out a long time ago, but there's just something about it that's just sort of still sticks in my craw. Could you just put, just smooth it and just tie the cut together? And I, I'd say, yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, it's just, that's Craig. Even something that, that isn't even there anymore, it's, it's still... My old, motivating my, him. My old ear tricks the eye. Yes, yes. exactly. Yeah. Well, you taught me that. I mean, <laughs> one of the one of the great lessons I learned from from you was in terms of dialogue. Can you just raise that syllable just a little bit? You know, I'm not, get a little bit more out of you know the the feeling there, particularly in terms of ADR, finding combinations yeah. of different yeah. things where you'd maybe use the first couple of words from one yeah, take of that. the ADR, and then you'd yeah. use a little bit of the production, and then you'd use a little bit more from the ADR at the other he end. Would, he would run a session. And, and and he would be able to, Craig would be able to sit there and he'd say, let me hear the first, let me hear the ADR lines. We'd go through them one at a time. And he'd say, Two. Okay, give me the first line from number one, and the second line from number three, and the third line. And you'd put them together, and it would be like butter. Like the like emotional flow. Emotionally, it would work. It would it would match the performances. Craig was always, you know, you were always looking for the best combination of things. It was also the only time in my experience that we would go in and screen three reels, four reels, and just pick ADR, mm -hmm. go through it, make those choices, make choose everything, and then I would go back and and at least with the ADR would would do the com the combinations and. So I then when we sit down to mix, that's most directors don't have the focus but I've to come used in. That and, on, and but know, it was a great, films, it was such I've, a great thing because you would work yeah. all that out, and then it would go in, and you'd be able to yeah. prepare. And that was a lesson that I learned early, back on Melvin and Howard. We were doing this, and you know, the first couple of films that we did together, Craig was instrumental in sort of teaching me how to be a mixer in a lot of ways. And I've used that on films, other films where. Craig wasn't involved, you know, where if you give me two or three takes of ADR, I'm always trying to figure out, well, what's the, what works the best? What seems to play best? And it's always about what plays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so. I wanted to say something that occurs to me as I'm listening to all of these people, many of whom, in fact, all of them, the exception of Tom, whom I see all the time. And I just wanted to say as an appreciation especially since I'm the oldest person in the room, and you have to listen to me, that I am so blessed, so fortunate to have experienced all these people, even though there were fights, inevitably. I'm just so incredibly fortunate. And so in this public forum, thank you. Thank you. That's very Thank good. you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I've worked I, on a bunch I, of I, movies that you've been the, the guy on and... Uh, and they've all been well. Great. You were simply the best one in town, man. Hands down. Yeah. Hands down. Yeah. Uh, I remember a moment, a very sweet moment, and this was on Melvin and Howard, the first film that Tom mixed, and we had been working on it, and we were getting through it, and it was working nicely, and we had a, a composer whose name was Bruce Langhorn, and uh, uh, a very talented composer. He was Mr. Tambourine Man. He was. The song was written about him. He was the actual Mr. Tambourine Really? Man. Wow. And uh, he played uh, guitar with Dylan uh, early. So we're getting close to 
finishing up and the music tracks are coming in late. They were coming in late and we're putting the stuff in and there's a lot of source music in the place and there was some score, there's some good score. Yeah, I mean, Bruce really nailed it. And But this one piece of score came in and it's the ending when Melvin is kissing his wife goodbye and the kids goodbye. And we hadn't heard it. We put up the track and and this piece of music came in and it worked with the scene so beautifully. And I'm looking at Tom and Tom's looking at me and we're like, welled up. <laughs> and I, the moment was so great that you could, I mean, you could, it was very, you remember that? I Don't start crying. I'm crying right now. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just, whoa. You know, it was a revelation to me yeah, yeah. about how well, music can work. Yeah, well, that's To change the emotional. The impact yeah, of a yeah, scene. It can do, you know, it's a very important component that we haven't really discussed, but it is, you know, it's a major, major component. And uh, and there's a real craft to doing it. Somebody, to, I mean, to know how to write underscore, and I mean underscore, yeah. something that supports the, the emotionality of the moment, you know, and the narrative. It's very, un, you know, not many people have Not the, many the gift. people can do that, yeah. you know. As Dan Sable said, uh, nobody leaves the theater whistling the foley. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh my gosh. Well, thank you all so much. Again, I'd like to thank our hosts at Soundtrack, our guests, Tom Fleischman, Craig McKay, Chris Newman, Phil Stockton, Deborah Wallach, Ron Bokar. And our recording engineer for today's session, Rick Schnupp. Thank you so much. This was really incredible, and I can't wait to share it with people. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Great to be here.